Weather forecast said 70% chance of rain, so y'all need to be aware of that. As we can leave out of here, I ask you, if you will, to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 3. Psalm chapter 3. going to continue over the last couple of weeks. We looked at Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, and now we're going to continue today in Psalm 3. Thankful to be standing here before you, a testimony of God's mercy in and of myself, and thankful as we have sung that his mercy is more, his grace is greater. And so this morning, we're going to depend upon that mercy and grace as we gather together around his word and look to his word together. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to be reading from Psalm chapter 3, starting in verse 1. I'll read the entire psalm. The psalmist says, O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek and you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And we pray this morning that your word through the power of your spirit will work in each and every heart and life this morning. As we gather around your word to, to worship you, as we sing praises of your great mercy, help us to be reminded, Father, of the kindness that you bestow upon us, that while we were yet sinners, you sent your son to die for us. That while we were still ungodly, Father, unlovable in many ways, you loved us. And you loved us enough, Father, to purchase us and redeem us back from death, sin, despair, and shame. God, through your Son, Jesus Christ, we have found life and found it abundant. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, we have found what we've been looking for, satisfaction. And so, God... We pray this morning that your kindness would not be lost upon us, but as your word says, help your kindness lead us to worship, help, us to, help it lead us to praise your name, but help it also to lead us to repentance. And as we gather together this morning, Father, may we come to you recognizing our utter and absolute need of you, that apart from you, we can do nothing, but in you, Father, we can have true life, real joy, a sure hope, God. So in that we rest this morning in nothing else. It's in Christ and in his word we rest this morning and in nothing else. And so as we turn to Psalm 3, Father, help us to turn there with a heart and an attitude of joy and thanksgiving. With one of humility, God, asking your word to mold us and shape us and to make us into who you would have us to be. Help us turn our eyes toward Christ now. For your name and for your glory, we ask all of these things. Amen. As I stated over the past several weeks, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 were introductory psalms. 
They establish basically uh, introduction to the entire book, 150 Psalms having collected. They establish an introduction. And that introduction helps us see themes that are going to run throughout the book of Psalms that are going to help us in this. Psalm 1 teaches us, as all of the Psalms will teach us, that we must delight and meditate on the Word of God. That when we delight in the Word of God and meditate on His Word, that that will lead to flourishing life. Like a tree planted by the water who produces fruit, those who delight and meditate on the word will flourish. In other words, as he says, blessed is the man in Psalm 1, he is saying, if you want to find true satisfaction, here is where it is found, delighting in the word. That's what we are to do. We're to delight delight in the word. That's our action. That's our part, delighting in the word. But then Psalm 2 comes back a little bit and wants to make something else clear. That it's not just delighting in the word that we'll find us. It's this one who will come that the word points us to who will bring as the anointed one of God redemption for his people. Psalm 2 tells us that there's one who's been anointed of God, the Messiah, who will come. And it's this one who will, find, who will bring redemption. Blessed is the man who finds refuge in him. And so for us as believers today, we know that the Christian life is about resting in the one who has come to redeem us and save us, the great Messiah on our behalf, and believing and trusting and doing by delighting in his word. Psalm 1 and 2 tells us these things, what we are to do and where we are to rest. So it says, and it ends, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now I think Psalm 3, I believe Psalm 3 is going to put the promises of Psalm 1 and 2 to the test. I believe that's why it stands in this location. It's going to put those promises to the test. Psalm 3 has traditionally been referred to as a morning psalm along with its counterpoint, or counterpart, Psalm 4, which is referred to as an evening psalm. Psalm 3, a morning psalm. Psalm 4, an evening psalm. Now, the reason for this comes from two simple verses. Psalm 3, verse 5, I laid down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. Therefore, the psalmist is saying, I, I slept through the night. I woke. The Lord has sustained me, a morning psalm of, of thanksgiving and joy. Psalm 4 says, in peace, verse 8, in peace I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. And so Psalm 4 being the one he, he, he sings before he goes to sleep that night, I will sleep and rest and in you, you have provided safety. Psalm 3, the morning I woke, I slept, I woke, the Lord sustains me. Psalm 4, the evening, in peace I lie down and the Lord will give me safety. Traditionally, that's how they've been referred and I would say, I, I think that's okay. I think it may be some, some flimsy reason to observe Psalm 3 as the, as the morning psalm simply for verse 5. But I do think it's a morning psalm. And I do think that this morning that it's referring to is a specific morning at a specific time in a specific place. In other words, there is a clear context that is happening here in Psalm 3 found in the superscription there. If you have your Bibles, you'll see Psalm 3. It'll say, a Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. Hopefully your Bibles have that in it. That was a part of the original Hebrew canonical text. That was a, a statement by the author David himself who says, this is one I wrote. Here is when I wrote it. And so not only does it tell us who the author is, and we know David wrote many of the Psalms, especially in the first half of the book, 
but we also now see of when he wrote it. In other words, there's a specific context that surrounds Psalm 3. He says, I lay down and slept and I woke again, is David referring to a specific morning, a specific time, a specific morning that he woke up and he found joy. And so in that sense, it's important for us to recognize this context. This morning after, after he laid down and slept, this morning after that he had to flee, as it says here in this superscription, from Absalom, his son. Now this story is found in 2 Samuel 15 through 17. And so this morning, I know it's kind of rainy outside, but, but if you can, stay with me, because it's vitally important that we understand the context of this story. Absalom was the son of David, his third son with the wife Makkah. Absalom was one who, who had great prowess amongst the people, if you will. Absalom had to flee Jerusalem. His half-brother Amnon, David's other son uh, from another mother, had, had taken advantage of his sister Tamar, Absalom's sister Tamar. And Absalom had responded in anger and had killed Amnon. And so Absalom had to flee. And after a short time or some time being away, David calls him back longing. He's lost Amnon. Absalom is gone. He calls him back and he welcomes Absalom in back into the kingdom and he gives him safety there. And when Absalom comes back, he has grown somewhat older and he becomes the poster boy, if you will, for Israel's new generation. As his father David had been reigning for some time and too much, in, uh, too much work was taking place for David and David had lost touch of the people. Remember, that's how David had gotten in. The people knew him. The people loved him. They celebrated him. But now over time, the work had mounted up and David had lost touch with the people. As Absalom comes back, he notices this and looks to take advantage. Now, as I said, he was the poster boy for Israel's new generation. 2 Samuel 14, verse 25, tells us of Absalom. He says, Now in all of Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. He was a pleasure, a joy, a handsome one to look at, one who just by his appearance and his presence would draw attention to himself, draw a crowd, the charisma that we have seen. Now, we have also noticed the, the nature of the Israelite people. You see, the king before uh, David was King Saul, who was chosen because of his handsome and good looks. And now here's Absalom who comes along, and here's Absalom who is handsome, not from his sole of his feet to the crown of his head, no blemish in him. In fact, the text tells us that his hair was so gorgeous, he would let it grow all year long, and at the end of the year, he would cut it, they would weigh it, and it would bring 200 shekels. I think that's a compliment. I mean, in my mind, it's not really that big a deal. But that's who Absalom was. He was a spectacle to be seen. And Absalom sees this weakness in his father and he begins to plot to take advantage of it. Absalom wants to take advantage of it so he primped himself up all the more. He got someone, a consultant, if you will, for, to help his image before people in town. And what did he do? He went out and got himself a chariot, a nice chariot, he got himself some horses. He got himself 50 men. And everywhere he went, 
Samuel tells us, throughout Jerusalem, he would have 50 men leading out in front of him and him riding on his horse and chariot. He was a spectacle to be seen, someone without blemish from his head to his feet, gorgeous, handsome, beautiful hair, all of this going out. And it says Absalom would go to the gates of the city and whenever people would come in, he would say, where are you from? And they would say, we're from Red Bank, Israel, right? And they say, well, I hate that. We got a complaint we want to bring to the king. Well, Absalom said, I hate that. The king does not have anybody designated to listen to you. The king can't hear your judgment because he's too busy. If I were the judge, I would handle this properly. This was Absalom's method. And over time, the scripture says that Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel He turned them against David the king. As they left out from Jerusalem, they would say of Absalom, if he was king, maybe we would be heard, but David would not hear us. And after years of doing this, Absalom had decided it was was time for him to strike. David had a revered counselor named Ahitophel. That's right, Ahitophel. I said it exactly right, don't worry about it. (laughs) Ahitophel was his, his favorite counselor and Ahitophel joined the side of Absalom and they began to devise a scheme to overthrow David without David's knowledge. Absalom went to his father and said, I have a vow. I'm supposed to go and offer sacrifices in Hebron. Let me go. David said, go. And he went with his blessing. He took men with him. They went out and everywhere he went, he would rally those who he had stolen the hearts of, rally those to his cause. And it even says they didn't even know what Absalom was doing, but still he was being devious and plotting and scheming. And the revolt was so sudden and unexpected that David could do nothing but flee the city. He had to flee Jerusalem as he heard that Absalom was returning with an army to overthrow him. And that he was on his way back. David began to flee. He got anybody he could, anybody that was still loyal to him, and he said, let's go, we have to get out. And he fled Jerusalem with whatever would go and whoever would go with him. He made his way, it says, down through the Kidron Valley over to the Mount of Olives. In 2 Samuel chapter 15, it says, David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot with his head covered. Now here's David, the king of Israel, and now his son has come back to overthrow him, and he's leaving out of the city, crying with every step, weeping tears of not only rejection by his son and his son overcoming him, but having to leave as the king. He's leaving without any shoes on to show you the urgency of him having to get out of town. So he's leaving barefoot, weeping with his head covered. He's got his hood up over his head so no one would recognize him, which would be an act of shame for the king to leave the city this way. So David, now facing the revolt of Absalom, has to flee the city barefoot, weeping in shame. Not only that, the text says, as soon as he goes out to the Mount of Olives, there's one who comes to him named Shmi. Shmi was uh, in the family of Saul, who David had overthrown as king, and Shmi hated him. And it says, so as David is walking out barefoot and crying in shame, he's got Shmi, this guy walking beside him, throwing rocks at him, chunking dust at him, and cursing him with every step. So David now has the predecessor's family over here, cursing him, hating him, mocking him, throwing stones at 
at him, and he has his family cursing him, hating him, mocking him, and chasing him out of the city. David is fleeing barefoot, alone, and in tears, in shame from his throne. That's the context of Psalm 3. Not only that, we find out what the plot's going to be. As Absalom entered Jerusalem, he's going to send Ahithophel with 12,000 men to chase David, to chase him as far as they could. And when they chase him, they will get him weary and tired. And as he comes to finally rest and exhaustion, not being able to go any further while he is alone, Ahithophel would go in and kill David by himself. No other bloodshed would be needed. That was their plan. They loved the plan. No other bloodshed. That way, those who were with David could now come back. They'd come back to Jerusalem. Absalom would be made king, and he would bring peace. No fight, no bloodshed other than David himself. It was during that context that David wrote Psalm 3. David fleeing for his life, chased by 12,000 men, barefoot, in tears, and exhausted. And as he collapsed in sleep that night from exhaustion, he was not sure what tomorrow would hold. Not sure. Now I believe, I believe many in this room can relate to this psalm. You may say, Josh, that was a pretty specific context in a pretty specific place. In a pretty specific way about Absalom and David. I mean, so how can we relate to this? I'm pretty sure as you read Psalm 3 and you look at that first line, Oh Lord, how many are my foes? That thought has oftentimes maybe crossed into your head as well. How many are my enemies? Why are so many against me? Why have so many risen up? Maybe they come from your family Maybe they are found at your job. Maybe they are in your neighborhood. You lose sleep thinking about it. It consumes your day. Those people who rise up against you as enemies, for whatever reason it may be, those people who seemingly think they've got something against you all the time. And it may not be the thousands like David has. It may not be the armies chasing you. But surely the one, the two, the three that come up in our own life feel like they are relentless and more than we can handle at times. More than we can handle. In fact, we seem to be living in a world of foes and enemies. Betrayed by someone close to us, like Absalom did his father. You may have tried to do what was right. You may have tried to, to do what you thought was, was good for the situation, only to be betrayed, only to be chased, only to be hated, only to be mocked. Enemies have risen up against each and every one of us. But notice what David says in verse 2. And I want us to be clear about this as we see it because our tendency, of course, is to say, oh, preach it now, Pastor. Thank you so much. Finally, somebody recognizes all these people are being mean to me. But David makes this even deeper here. And I want us to go even deeper because what's truly happening here is the enemies of David are seeking to take his throne, right? They're seeking to take his position. They're seeking to take his life. And David says, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. They go from not just wanting his throne and his money to questioning his salvation. 
to questioning whether or not God is good and God is great and questioning whether or not they, they should trust in his God. In fact, Absalom makes it very clear he does not. He's going to end David and take it on. And so here we see that David understands that this battle, like we find in the New Testament, is not just against flesh and blood. This is a battle of who is truly God. Who reigns? This is spiritual warfare. As Paul tells us in Ephesians, all of our battles are spiritual warfare. All of our foes come at us this way. We don't battle against flesh and blood. All of our battles are against the one who seeks to destroy us. And there is one who seeks to destroy us. The scripture makes that clear as well. That there is one who is looking to take away the people of God, even the elect if he can. He knows he's defeated. He's looking to take them down with them. There's one, the devil himself, who's looking to destroy those who seemingly call upon the Lord. They are his greatest targets. Why? Because if he can get you to falter and fall, then surely he can testify that, see, there is no God who saves. And so this enemy comes at us, the devil himself looking to destroy us, and he will use any means necessary, family, friends, work, money, whatever he can get his hands on, whatever situation he can grab, he will use it to destroy the people of God. Even if it's the heart of Absalom, even if it's the heart of family members, of others, he will use it to destroy the people of God, whatever he can do. That's why I don't like it when people say they're just playing devil's advocate. He's got enough advocates. He doesn't need you or us or anyone else. The devil is looking to destroy. And in destroying us, he's looking, he, he is absolutely relentless. He comes over and over again. I've used this illustration before, reminded of it again this week. My, my youngest son playing in the waves at the ocean, and you get in that one spot where the waves just keep hitting. You know what I'm talking about? And that one comes and it knocks you down. And by the time you get back up, get to your feet, there's another one. And then there's another one until there's another one until finally daddy's got to come and pull you out because you're going to drown. So it is with the devil. He comes after us to knock us down. And the moment we think we're back on our feet, he knocks us again and again and again. And our problem is we are looking at the waves who are knocking us down and not the one who can save us and redeem us. And that's exactly what's happened throughout Scripture. You may not know all of these stories, but they'd be great for you, for you to learn. Maybe you have learned them, but, but maybe the, the 12 spies can remind you of this. Whenever the people of God are entering into the promised land, God had told them it was theirs. They send in 12 spies, go tell us what it looks like. 10 of them come back. They take their eyes off the fact that God has given them this land, that he will fight for them and that he's going to provide it. The 10 spies says, no, the people in the land are too big. They're giants. We can't take them. The cities are too strong. That's not enough. We need to turn around and go home. Or maybe you're like, Elisha's cupbearer, who wakes up in the morning early to get the coffee made, and when he steps out the tent, he looks out at the, the mountains, and he sees the army having found them and surrounded them, looking to kill them, and he comes back in shaking and trembling. It's over. It's done. We're through. We're dead. And Elijah said, Lord, open his eyes, and he looks beyond the army that is out there to kill them. He sees the army of God, which is greater, stronger, and mightier, or maybe even like Peter, who the Lord says, come on out the boat, Peter. And as the storms raged, he took his eyes off Christ. The storm became so overwhelming to him, he looked at the storm and he began to sink and drown until the Lord rescued him. You see, our problem oftentimes is we do have enemies, we do have these things, but where we falter and where we fail is when we take our eyes off the God who sustains us and keeps us and we put our eyes off the enemies that surround us. 
And the scriptures call us to look to the Lord, not to our circumstances. Look to the Lord who provides. Look to the Lord who strengthens us. Look to the Lord who, who gives us all of these things. And during the night, in his weakness, at his most weak moment, David collapses. The plan of the enemy has worked to this point. He has been driven out. He is weary. He is tired. And the enemy's desire always is to catch us alone, sleeping, right? And here's David, weary and tired, having driven to the point of exhaustion, alone and asleep. To that point, the plan has worked. And during the night, in that moment, in his weakness, David did not look to the armies that were coming. He looked to the God whom he served. He didn't look at the 12,000 who were coming after him. He looks to the God who will serve. You see this verse 1 and 2, O oh Lord, how many are my foes? May Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. David is setting up the moment. And then he gives that little selah there, maybe a pause, maybe wanting us to make sure we understand. That's, that's the end of that thought. Let me show you another thought that is happening. And in the midst of setting up the moment, our enemies are among us. They're questioning whether or not our God is real. They're questioning whether or not I can survive. They're coming after me to kill me. They're everywhere. But you, O Lord, David turns, takes his eyes off the enemies that chase him, and he looks to the Lord that's with him. And in this moment, David sees this God whom he serves, and he says a couple things about him. You, O oh Lord, are a shield about me. In other words, David recognizes that his protector, his protector in the midst of his enemies, is not all of the armies that he has amassed. His protector are not his chariots or his horses. His protector is not the sword by his side. His protector is not his mighty men that he had gathered together. The one that truly protects David and has kept him so far is the Lord God himself. He is his shield. Because here's David, barefoot, weeping in tears, exhausted in shame, having fled for his life from his throne. Here's David with all of the things he had amassed, his wealth, his name, his fame, all of that offers him nothing at this point. All of that offers him nothing. In fact, all of that is going against him. It's his position and his wealth and his fame that Absalom is after. And David says, Lord, you are the one that protects me. Not anything else. He's not trusting in his chariots. He's not trusting in his armies. He's not trusting in his wisdom. He's not trusting in his strength because he recognizes all of those things will get you killed. It's only the Lord God Almighty that protects In other words, Absalom makes a terrible mistake. Absalom believes David is alone. And the enemy, the enemy of God who goes after the people of God makes that same terrible mistake all the time. He thinks we're alone. But we serve a God who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am with you always. And even if you make your bed in Sheol, David, I'm there. 
If you rise up to heaven, that's where I am. If you're in the cave, lonely and weary, I'm still with you. Your protector, I've not left you. I'm the one that's with you. David, you are not alone. And David looks up and he realizes that Absalom's made a grave mistake. No matter what, how weak he may look, the Lord is his shield. He's a child of God and he's never alone. God is always with you. We may not, we may not always do what's right. We may find ourselves in terrible predicaments, but what we can never do baseline for us as believers is forget that God is with us. The moment we are, we find ourselves weary and weak and vulnerable. But look to God. Not only that, he says, not only are you with me, you lift up my head. You're the lifter of my head. David had his hood on, leaving in shame, walking out of town, hoping nobody sees him. He was cast down. And sin does that to you. So let's be clear about something. Before we, we want to just see David as an innocent bystander in this, we recognize that oftentimes the things and enemies that rise up come up from dumb mistakes that we make, don't they? And so here we see that Nathan, the prophet, had come to David back when David had sinned against Bathsheba. And he had told David, he said, because of your sin, David repented of his sin and turned back. But Nathan said, there's going to be consequences for your sin. And because of this, even your own family is going to rise up against you. And surely David may be thinking of that now. Absalom has turned against me. And remembering the words of Nathan, even your family is going to rise against you because of your own sinfulness. And surely if you think of it that way, David probably was even more dejected. Man, how did we get here? If I'd have only done what was right, if I'd have only been better, if I'd have only not put myself in that position. I've dealt with this before, Psalm 51. I've, I've, I've confessed this before, but still it haunts me. Still it comes after me. And what the devil wants you to do is allow your sin to beat you down. The devil does not have any problem reminding you of your sinfulness. In fact, he wants you to think that you're not worthy of the protection of God. He wants you to think that you've done too much wrong, that you're not within his reach, that he don't want to deal with you anymore. He wants you to think that God's not coming to your rescue because look how awful you are. And David says, that's not my God. My God lifts up my head. That idea of lifting up the head is to say, don't walk around in shame. If God is for you, who can be against you? Even in your sin, I've loved you and cared for you. Even when you were gone, I chased you down in your sin and called you to repentance. God's the one who sent Nathan to him. God's the one who called him back to himself. God's the one who has him in that spot, in that place now. And he says, though sin makes you weary and beats you down, the Lord always lifts you up. The Lord always builds you up. He always encourages. I mean, it's the God of the universe is with you in the cave, David. The one who spoke that cave into existence by the very word of his mouth, that one is with you. How can you not be encouraged? Lift up your head. And though your sins be as scarlet, I will wash them as white as snow. And though they are many, his mercy is more. Amen. Though our sins are great, his grace is greater. Lift up your head. For while you were still ungodly, God came to save you. While you were still in your sin, he came to redeem you. Lift up your head, David. And let me encourage each and every one of you to do the same. Surely our sins are great, but you should know the grace of God is greater. 
And he's loved you so much to send his son and bestow that grace upon you to save you and redeem you. Even when we were unlovable, he loved us and saved us for himself. Lift up your head. He's your shield and your protector. He's the one who encourages you and strengthens you. Not only that, he's the one who answers you. The God of the universe is your shield and protector. The God of the universe is the one who has the power to forgive and has forgiven. Lift up your head. Don't let anyone make you walk in shame. The God of the universe is with you in the cave, David, and when you cry out from him, he answers from his holy hill. And I love that statement. He added from his holy hill. God is with him in the cave, and at the same time, he reigns on the throne. In other words, he's with you in the muck, in the mire, and because he reigns on the throne, he can do something about it. Because he's in charge. He's in control. That muck and mire has nothing for him. He can handle that. He can take care of it, and he hears you. He doesn't have to step off of his throne and come into the same room you are in to answer your prayers. He is mighty and strong enough to answer right from where he is on the throne in heaven. And he hears you. The Psalms will later say that the gods of this world have eyes but cannot see Mouths but cannot speak, arms that cannot have, do not have any power, feet that are dead, and they have ears that cannot hear. They're deaf, dumb, and stupid, the psalmist says, the gods of this world are, but not our God. Our God not only sees the plight of David in the cave, not only comforts him with his word, not only comes to him with his mighty hands to save him where he is, he hears his cries when he calls on him and he answers them. He answers them. You see the next little statement there is that Selah. It's almost like David had this little, this little epiphany, if you will, this little moment. My enemies are great. They are huge. They're surrounding me. They're looking to kill me. They're coming after me. I'm fleeing with no shoes on. I'm, I'm, I'm upset, having to run out of Jerusalem. I've lost it. All. Wait a minute. My God is my shield. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. He's the one who lifts me up, not this. Wait. My God hears my prayers. And in that moment of looking at his enemies and surrounding him, David takes his eyes off of them and he looks to his God. And that's when David says, I lay down and slept and I woke again for the Lord sustained me. The plan of Absalom was to make me weary and tired and kill me alone. But David, weary and tired, slept. And in his sleeping, the plan of Absalom had not succeeded. God had woke him up the next day and he found that the mercies of God are new and fresh that morning. And by waking up that next morning, David says, my God reigns. It didn't change the fact that they're hunting him down. It didn't change the fact that they're coming. It didn't change the fact that the enemies were bearing on him. What changed was David took his eyes off the enemies. He took his eyes off of those things and he looked to God. And in that moment, he recognized, my God sustains me. I will not be afraid even of many thousands of people that set themselves against me. My God sustains me. I'll not be afraid. He answers me. He sustains me. I was reading commentary this week. My good friend Charles Spurgeon said, we need not fear a frowning world while we rejoice in a prayer hearing God. 
David rejoiced in that cave that morning as God woke him up. And as he responds, having woken up that morning by the grace of God, looking at who he is, the, the one who is a shield protector, the lifter of his head, the one who answers his prize, the one who let him sleep and sustains him in the face of his enemies, he calls out to God, arise, O Lord. Save me, O God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek and you break the teeth of the wicked. David recognizes his dependence is not in his strength or power. Praise God, because he's got none. At his weakest moment, he looks to his God whom he knows will deliver him. And isn't that part of the scriptures itself? While we were weak, Christ came for us. In our weakness, we find our strength. And so does David here, because he depends totally upon the Lord. And he says, you are the one who saves me. You're the one who redeems me. They may say there's no salvation in my God, but you, God, you, God, are the one that sustains me and redeems me. You're the one who saves me. I will not be afraid. Strengthened by the Lord himself, David woke up to a new day. And I truly believe that many of you need to wake up to a new day as well. Not looking at the enemies and the strife that may surround you, but looking to the God who loves you, who is your protector and your shield. Looking to the one who lifts up your head and washes away your sin by the blood of his Savior. Look to the one who hears your cries when he calls. Quit trusting in the gods of this world that are deaf, dumb, and stupid, and trust in the one who can save and redeem. David wakes up that morning knowing that his God still reigns. And he's still with him. And he's still protecting him. And he's still serving him. David says, do your work, Lord. Do what only you can do. Arise. Save me. Strike my enemies. Do your work. David casts all of his burdens upon the Lord. In many ways, David, as I said, this Psalm 3 becomes an example of Psalm 1 and 2. David is this blessed man who meditates on the word. David is a blessed man who's delighting in the word of God. He sees his enemies, but he doesn't trust in that. He looks to the word of God. He is my shield and my strength. Surely he's thought of all the times where he was killing lions and slayed Goliath and watched over him when he was hiding in caves from Saul, all these other guys. God saves me. He's reminded of the word of God that comes to him, and he looks to his word. He's delighting in his word, and in this he finds blessedness, satisfaction, even in the face of his enemies. But even more than that, Remember, David is the anointed king of God. He is the one God had placed on the throne and anointed himself. He's his man in that spot. And Psalm 2 tells us the nations are going to rage against the anointed one of God. The nations are going to seek to make the anointed one of God perish, put him to death. But the anointed one of God will rule over them. And what we look for now and what we see is that you can rise up against the anointed one of God, but you will lose. For God has established his position. And for us, as believers, 2022 in Taylor, South Carolina, who trust not only in the God of the Psalms, but the God of 
the New Testament as well, who trust that this whole book is one book for us from beginning to end, pointing us to one who is greater than David himself, one who will be chased to the point of exhaustion himself in John chapter 17, sweat drops of blood, exhausted from the fight, one who will cry out to God, one who will cry out to God, not my will, but your will be done, Father, and the Father will hear his cries and say, I will bring you to glory, one who will be hunted down alone, exhausted, and sent to a cross, that one will experience defeat seemingly. But what we know is what may look like to defeat to the world is victory to God. What David knows is what may look like shame and defeat to the world is victory with God. And we look to this anointed one who will bring salvation for his people, who the nations may rage up against and he will set them down. Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's in him we pray today. Let's do that. Father, thank you for Christ. God, we thank you for what he has done for us. And because of what Christ has done, all the promises of scripture, yes and amen. And so God, as we gather here today, we are reminded of Christ. We can think about our own life. We can look at the difficulties we face, the enemies that rage up against us, how the devil so often seeks to pull us away from you. But today, Father, may none of us look to those things. May our eyes be drawn to the one who rules and sustains us over all things. May our eyes be drawn to the one who hears our prayers, who protects us and provides for us. May our eyes be drawn to God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord today. And may we wake up a new day not defeated, downtrodden, barefoot in shame. May we make up a new day, strengthened and encouraged by our Savior and our Lord. God, I pray that for every single person here today. And if there's any that need to trust in Jesus who've, who've experienced these foes and can even say with David, how many are there? I pray today that they can say, but you, O oh God, are our protector our shield. God, lift up the heads of all who are present. And if today for the first time they feel the touch of your hand, today for the first time they hear those faithful words, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. God, may they wake up to a new day of your grace and mercy, trusting in you and you alone. All of this we ask, Father, in full dependence of you. For it's in Jesus we pray, amen. Let's stand together and sing.